1: What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that, too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash summer skies thank you and keep looking up
0: a number of aerospace and defense insiders tell us that anti-gravity planes and discs have been a reality for more than half a century what if the real question is what should the people know how much do they really want to know is this or is this not why we exist to cover what corporate media won't
1: unfortunately all the good stuff's locked away in special access
0: programs born secrets forever secrets no mandatory declassification date is that ours or theirs well by theirs you mean the russians i don't mean the russians without your discernment without your analysis without what i know is your commitment to honesty then this just disappears into folklore
1: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies.
0: Oh, it's a it's a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. The
1: pleasure is all mine, man. I I recently watched your film, The Eleventh Green, and woo. It blew me away, and we, we we will definitely get to that, but um before we even talk about the real reason you're here, to talk about your new film, some of my listeners, they probably are familiar with one of your other films, if they follow my work, and the work of, uh, you know, cryptozoologists, and the paranormal, and everything, and uh, I saw that this wasn't your first dive, kind of, into the unknown, and more esoteric topics, so I was wondering maybe if you could uh, tell us a little about your, your film Letters from the Big Man before we even get started here.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, The feature that I made prior to this one, as you say, was called Letters from the Big Man, and it dealt with the subject of Sasquatch, but it tried to deal with it in a realistic way uh, as a drama where the character of the Sasquatch is not presented as a monster or uh, some sort of threatening presence. And it dealt with uh, a woman who was a forester uh, and artist, and while conducting a, a stream survey for the Forest Service, winds up interacting with this uh with this being who winds up being a an influential uh, figure in her life <laughs> in, in a certain uh,
1: in a certain roundabout way and you know i think you you hit the nail on the head when you said uh drama now for some of these topics it, it can always be taken um, you know, with a little smirk as it is in the mainstream media often, uh, that seems mm-hmm. to be changing. But, uh, you do have this line, I think, that goes throughout all your films of really touching on societal issues and, you know, the cultural impact these things can have. And, um, that was very apparent in your new film, The Eleventh Green as well. So I guess kind of diving into The Eleventh Green, where did, you, where'd the idea come from? for this film. And how familiar were you with UFOs? and you had an interest in it prior? Yeah, how did this all come about?
0: Well, I can't say that my knowledge of UFOs was extensive uh, before I sort of very organically embarked on this thing. Uh, neither was my knowledge of the Eisenhower presidency. But uh, what I think interested me about this was the fact that there was this p- uh, persistent uh, folklore out there since the 1950s that, on one or more occasions, Dwight Eisenhower, as president, had face-to-face meetings with representatives of extraterrestrial races, and for me, you know, it was more about um, the again the societal aspect, and what interested me very much in exopolitics was this idea of humanity's organic readiness to assimilate the information. And why, you know, why has it taken this long, really? Because we see, uh, you know, through all of the literature, and I, I had read some of the classic literature, not, not a great deal, but I had read like the Interrupted Journey by John Fuller, uh, mm-hmm. I had read uh, a couple of books by heineck and Valet. Um, I had read Clear Intent, so I was aware of some of the history, but n- not very much of it. Uh, of course, once I started writing the screenplay, it, it, you know, it involved a great deal of a great deal of reading and kind of looking at aspects of the phenomenon that didn't necessarily have a direct bearing on my storyline, but nevertheless uh, were important for me to explore to a degree. So. I think they say that, you know, it's important really to open all of those doors, even if you don't necessarily walk through them, uh, because Mm. they inform, you know, what it is you are writing about. So in any case, I think my desire to make the film arose less out of, uh, uh, wanting to do sort of a definitive, (laughs) uh, book about, or a definitive film about UFOs, which is impossible because it's such a vast topic, but rather, you know, this idea of, an emotional what if involving president Eisenhower and how would this man have perhaps reflected back on events of his presidency that had involved extraterrestrials, you know, would he have had any regrets about the way things went? Um, so uh, again, it was sort of kicking around for a while and, and it gelled eventually to involve a second president uh, in conversation with him and a contemporary journalist as the framing device for the story Um Journalist is always a good a good device in that way for allowing us as an audience to explore a topic that, that is many-faceted and, and dense with information.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, in an age where kind of everyone claims to be a journalist now, <laughs> it's good to see an actual investigative journalist out there looking for the story. You know, instead of regurgitating the same thing, we see every day, you know, once one a news outlet gets a hold of something, then you just see the same thing running throughout all of them. So, um yeah, in terms of that character... In, in your story of Rudd. I'd love to t- maybe paint a little picture of um what the overall premise of the film is, Chris, if you wouldn't mind. You know, now without giving too much away, but um yeah, what what is the overall uh idea of the eleventh green and um maybe a little even about the casting of this movie? I am I'm very familiar with your, your main character. I've been a huge fan of his work for a long time. So yeah, maybe if you could just paint a little picture of what the 11th Green is and um, how you went about casting it.
0: Well, the storyline involves a journalist uh, played by Campbell Scott who at the time of his estranged father's death is summoned back to California to sort of deal with his father's affairs. And his father was a retired Air Force general who Uh, was very involved in classified aerospace programs. And at the time of the story, Jeremy is reporting on an aerospace company that is attempting to migrate uh, a black world technology, as it were, uh, into commercial aviation. And the conceit for this uh, was loosely inspired by uh, the suggestion that around 2008, Boeing – uh, Aircraft Corporation, attempted to do just that. Uh, Paul LaViolette, the the writer uh, and physicist, suggested that and ha- has written about other aspects of exotic t- technology in, in connection with, you know, aerospace uh, programs. Um, so the idea was that at the time of Jeremy's reporting on this present-day event, he, by way of his deceased father, is all of a sudden thrust into this seemingly incredible uh backstory <laughs> of of uh our country's premature you could call it that intersection with uh uh crashed objects and and extraterrestrials in the 1950s and incredibly is offered film that pur- that purports to describe this and as a journalist, of course, he's, he's very hesitant about the authenticity of it and very concerned about his reputation and very concerned about, uh, u- utilizing it, uh, since it, it is being so freely, so freely offered to him. But I think the fact that, that it is coming his way is kind of indicative of the trend that we've been seeing where, um, there is more information out there and, and more even official, uh, information and acknowledgement out there, such as you know these videos that have um been out for a while but which came to prominence since 2017 by way of the mainstream coverage that the New York Times uh did and and other other outlets that typically in the past have not uh treated the subject very seriously mm-hmm. so In any case, uh, Jeremy, the the journalist, is also friends with the man who was the current president, Um, not our real current president, but uh, a Barack Obama-like character uh, who, who, again, was his boyhood friend. So there are all sorts of complications that arise concerning whether uh, the technology that this company is attempting to migrate will be declassified and whether that that can proceed or, you know, what would happen if... uh, the military or government decided that it couldn't, you know, couldn't be made public. And, you know, how would that, how would that work on a, on a criminal level? Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of opportunities to look at some of the issues surrounding UFO secrecy, such as the overclassification of documents, um, and just this, this long history of uh, using this, reality, the empirical reality of UFOs as a kind of psychological operation almost or uh, exploiting it for purposes of the national security state and exploiting it for uh, purposes of private, you know, gain in, in the aerospace sector.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is you know, throughout the 70-plus years of, you know, quote-unquote the UFO issue, I guess, there has always been this psychological warfare aspect to it. I mean, we know for a fact that other countries, uh, Russia in particular, uh, were digging into UFO researchers and um, sending people to try to find stuff out at these things so you know a lot of ufo researchers wish that were the case for them you know their work is that important that they would have these uh russian assets trying to get information from them but um We've, we've seen that this is, this is the case, you know, they've, they have possibly tried to create false narratives on what UFOs are or aren't, um, to either destabilize a certain nation, this, that. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole of conspiracy theory with that, but, um, kind of tying it back to what you're saying, Chris, um, there's these, uh, these moments in the film that I really liked where you, you represent UFO videos. We mentioned these current ones, the tic-tac UFOs, the gimbal, the go fast and everything. Um, but you, you go back in time to these sort of more, uh, 50s and 60s era, Cold War era. Videos, and I was wondering, could you tell us a little about um who worked on your effects and how you conceived your UFOs for the movie I mean, there were some some videos that uh, caught my attention where i 'm like, I feel like i 've seen this before, and of course they 're your spin on them, but um yeah, w- what was your idea for how to cover the UFO videos that our character Rudd comes across in the film well let 's see we
0: created. We created footage, uh, but we also knew that we would have uh, straightforward archival material that was a part of these discursive meetings between two presidents. So I, you know, sought out material that would illustrate some of the points being discussed. For instance, there's a point at which Eisenhower is talking about how uh, you had men, good men, having reactions within themselves that they couldn't control and they couldn't even begin to understand. And we sh, we see at that point a couple of people who figure prominently in the lore, people like Gordon Gray and Vannevar Bush and, and, uh, Hoyt Vandenberg and, uh, uh, some of those individuals who again had, I believe, grave concerns, um, having lived through the Second World War and indeed, the War of the Worlds, which came out in 1938. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of how we depicted, uh, UFOs, it, it was a decidedly lo-fi approach to it. And our, the fellow who worked on this, uh, with me, Ethan Fox, I think did a good job. I think a lot of people have been critical of, of the way, you know, the objects are so low, lo-fi. But again, we didn't really want to delve into, you know, making a, a modern sort of effects picture where there's a lot of visual uh, splash, I suppose, mm-hmm. associated with, with the objects. Uh, and certainly in the case of the historical, uh, UFOs, like the one that's at White Sands, you know, the, the intention was to attempt to integrate it as, uh, as seamlessly as possible. And then we have a couple of more contemporary ones. So it was a low, f- <laughs> the short answer to your question is it, it was a lo-fi approach to, to <laughs> depicting the UFOs.
1: It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, again, we're looking at, you know, quote-unquote historical or archival footage so um no i think it worked really well i mean one of them gave me chills and again not giving away too much to the audience uh you know this idea that these ufos could or could not possibly be in influencing our weaponry you know and we can get to that in a little bit the the kind of more overarching question of alien and human interaction but uh Eisenhower. Now, this is a big focus of the film. And you did mention different uh, world, world leaders meeting in your film. And um, of course, Eisenhower's played a huge role in UFO lore. He's a major player in your story. And um, so was a Obama-like representation. So why did you decide... um having these two former presidents meet up in the film, and maybe if you could describe a little of your approach to how they meet in this story. This, this, this blew my mind, man. I'm not going to lie. I loved it. Oh, well, I'm glad it worked for you. You know,
0: the idea was that we have this contemporary Obama-like president at a time when he really needs more clarity on this particular subject, which he has had limited access to, and he, uh, <laughs> well, in a literal sense, he, he uses, uh, a certain meditation, uh, protocol involving a recording, uh, to, um, go into this sort of altered state of consciousness in which he, he encounters Eisenhower, uh, in this kind of, you can call it a dreamscape if you want, or some, some in between, uh, out of time place. Mm-hmm. And again, during these, discursive conversations between the two men, he he gains a deeper understanding and also gains Eisenhower's seemingly after-death perspective on how the events have, have progressed since then and what might be an optimal approach for him to take. And, you know, as far as why these particular guys were chosen, well, again, Eisenhower figures prominently in the lore. Mm-hmm. And uh, Obama, again, seemed like uh, a man of such intellectual, you know, curiosity as to be a really good foil for him. And, of course, the way in which I depicted them, I think, undoubtedly was informed by my admiration, you know, my deep admiration for both of them in different ways, uh, despite you know, grave misgivings about certain policies uh, that each of them took. I mean, with Eisenhower, it's it's very obvious now that you know some of the covert actions that he embraced so readily in the 1950s were really misguided, and that we are in fact living with the very negative consequences of those actions now. Mm-hmm. You know, Obama, we're still a little bit too close to his presidency, really, but uh, there certainly are a number of areas in which he. He dealt with, uh, national security matters and, and targeted killing and so forth where it would not be inappropriate to have misgivings, I, I think. But in any case, um, the, the topic of this film was the UFOs and the extraterrestrial presence. And it, it was intended to be really an apolitical movie, uh, since the subject of UFOs is inherently apolitical um as we've seen you know by the various uh, television appearances and suggestions of recent presidents uh including our current president uh, very recently talking right. about this subject so there is there is a long history of our fascination with uh presidents uh and presidential exopolitics and this is something that Grant Cameron certainly over the years has written about uh very thoroughly and uh in a very in-depth sort of way. So I I think there's certainly something about inherent in the American presidency that is fascinating to us uh, since it represents a projection uh, of all of our highest values and ideals and uh, when it sort of falls short of that um, or when we feel like information maybe is being withheld from us for whatever reason. You know, we, we sometimes have an emotional reaction. Um, in Eisenhower's case, I, you know, he certainly accepted that large parts of his work had to be done, you know, out of view of the public, but I never doubted his, um, who he was working for. I never doubted that he was a servant of the people. He was, you know, of course, a national hero having you know led the allied expeditionary forces in Europe during the second world war he was supreme allied commander after the war he was the first head of nato uh, he was president of columbia university and he was the american president for for two terms and he shepherded america through a very dangerous period you know which i think uh, from a an historical perspective now often seems like it was more idyllic than it was or more stable than it was Probably because of the economic prosperity that America enjoyed during that time period. Mm-hmm. But the reality is it was extremely dangerous due to all of this, you know, testing of thermonuclear devices, you know, which of course segues into your, your earlier point about the presence of UFOs at nuclear storage facilities and the demonstration over and over again, very unequivocally that uh, they can disable um, these devices, you know, and yeah. Eisenhower in the film legitimately asks the question, well, if they can disable the devices, what is to keep people from fearing that they're going to fire one as well? Yeah. So, and, and that particular area, you know, UFOs and nukes, as it were, uh, is, is, it's been some really authoritative Good work done by people like Robert Hastings, who, who published a book by that title, and it's an excellent documentary as well, uh, that he participated in with, with Bob Salas, um, also extremely well researched. And prior to that, uh, Fawcett and Greenwood's, uh, classic book, Clear Intent, you know, uncovered a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, uh, official documentation involving these incidents, which were very unsettling for the people who were
1: involved in them absolutely i mean the fact that they could like you said with a flip of a switch either way uh, control our most powerful weapons on the planet is a little you know little concerning um even if their intentions are good uh, we always come back to the the question like are we the threat you know in dealing with these Possible others. Uh, we, we hear so much right now of these Navy pilots and, you know, not so worried about these unknown aerial phenomena, uh, being a threat to them, but our reaction to them could be the possible threat. So it's, Indeed. it's, you know, yeah, it's so are we the problem? And, um, you know, we'll ask those heavy questions uh in a moment here chris but i do want to move back to a more technical question if you don't mind uh the title 11th green the the home of eisenhower and later in life the home of jeremy rudd your your uh character your protagonist his father uh both lived in the same home and it was stunning to look at so i have to ask how did you find this home where was it located yeah give us the history on that if you don't mind (laughs)
0: Well thank you. Yeah, no we were very fortunate in that sense. Um my original hope of course was to build the uh, uh the house on a stage, you know, and and since a good chunk of the movie took place there and I had visited Eisenhower's actual house uh, which the current owners were extremely kind to let me see uh, and photograph and so forth. But at a certain point it was clear that I would be working at such a low budget it, it would be impossible to build uh to build it on a set. So I needed to find a location. And in that connection, you know, we, because we were such a small crew, uh, just a small handful of people, um, we actually did look on location a lot in Palm Desert and Palm Springs, California. And uh, there were a couple of historic houses that were possibilities, but not really very practical owing to the fact, firstly, that they were situated in these very exclusive golf clubs, but also in the case of one of them, at least, um, it was furnished, you know, with period furniture and the wear and tear factor would have been really bad for it. So mm-hmm. um, it didn't work out for us to shoot there. However... Um, our production designer, Jennifer Gentile, and our producer, uh, Valeria Lopez, uh, had both, as had I, we had all seen uh, a post that had occurred or that had appeared in the architectural blog uh, L.A. Curbed about a house uh, in La Cañada that uh, was very historic. It, um, it was built around 1958, and uh, it was similar to the case study houses in the sense that a lot of manufacturers uh, saw it as a as a show, show place for their products, whether they be, you know, built-in appliances or cabinetry or carpeting or what have you. And this house had just been sold, and it was in escrow uh, at the time we were looking and unavailable. But the day that it closed escrow, uh, Jennifer, the production designer, you know, got in touch with the owner and found out, you know, if it would be possible for them to delay the renovation work that they were planning to start on the house. So it just worked out very fortuitously for us uh, that we could do anything we we needed to do with the house. Um, And, you know, it was convenient and not in the desert. And I, and fortunately it had, it had only been owned by one family since it had been built. So it was a a virtual time capsule and many of the actual, uh, furniture and dressing was from the house itself, um, that we made use of. So, uh, I'm just extremely happy. And every time I see, every time I see the film and see the character of the house itself, it, it brought so much to the movie in that sense. I, I couldn't be more pleased with it. And of course, Sarah Garth, our cinematographer, did a wonderful job photographing it and, and using different techniques for the different eras that are depicted there, uh, hopefully to distinguish them, uh, from each other
1: that's awesome i love hearing you know the the inside story on how these things come to be in terms of like just by happenstance or the timing is perfect and you're right i mean it was stunning to look at and i'm watching it, i'm like wow that's where the budget went for this thing uh, but in reality like you said it was like a virtual time capsule it it just added such a flavor and style to uh to the movie. So no, that was awesome. A character of its own, I would say.
0: <laughs> yes. And it, and it was a big budget item, but it was such an important location we needed to we needed to spend the money.
1: Yeah, well, well worth it. Um well, moving back to uh, I guess the the bigger questions in the film, Chris. You have this this thing you call the backroom boys. I love this term. And um, so would you mind maybe giving us a little idea of what these backroom boys represent in the ov- overall narrative of your film?
0: Yes, I mean, the film uh, subscribes or to the hypothesis or, or uh, it postulates that there was a post-war special group that was created specifically to deal with the... UFO phenomenon, with the crashed objects, with the presumed extraterrestrial presence. And this organization, again, allegedly usurped other branches of the government. Not that it was a branch of the government. It was always, I think, created to to be autonomous uh, from the government so that the government itself could maintain plausible deniability with respect to everything that was going on but there was a real need for for the special studies group and there was all sorts of i think there were all sorts of turf wars that that went on you know during that during that era particularly with regard to signals intelligence um you know nsa which was the successor to the army's uh, signal security i think felt that it should have you know authority for for all of that and and Very interestingly, some of this is described by Admiral McConnell, uh, in his confirmation hearing, uh, his Senate confirmation hearing, he talks about some of these, these turf wars, and you know, again, NSA's struggle to uh, maintain dominance. I guess they would say mm-hmm. <laughs> over over signals intelligence. But uh, the group itself, uh, you know, various names have been uh, suggested as having been members of the group. Uh, Whitley Strieber wrote a, a very good novel, uh, novel about this uh, alleged organization called Majestic which I think kind of gets it basically right. So you had again as Eisenhower's head men with, with grave concerns about this. Some of them like Admiral Hillenketter uh, returned to, to active duty after his service in the alleged organization and after his service to as first director of CIA uh, and Indeed was, you know, a board member of NICAP was a good friend of, of the author, of the writer, uh, Donald Kehoe, who wrote some of the most important books of the fifties that mm-hmm. sort of gives us the blow by blow account of this. And, and interestingly, going back to what we were talking about earlier about UFOs and nukes, Hillenketter himself in the early 1960s, uh, stated publicly his concern, uh, which echoed the concern of many military men that the misidentification of a UFO as some sort of Soviet threat could lead to disa- disaster and the mm-hmm. starting of a war. So he, he was a proponent of open research, uh, on the subject later on. But in any case, it does seem that the post-war group was an outgrowth or made use, extensive use of the, uh, apparatus that was in place for the atomic bomb project, um, that was an outgrowth of, of OSRD, the, the Office of Scientific Research and Development which Vannevar Bush headed. Uh, he describes in his late memoir, Pieces of the Action, in great detail the way in which he went around Congress and went around the military to President Roosevelt directly to, to establish the organization, which provided a number of important technological uh, tools to this country uh, immediately before and during the war and uh of course oversaw the building of the bomb so that the national laboratories existed and within the national laboratories after the war these phenomena could be studied and uh, and so forth so you know i think again this is speculation but it kind of conforms to what is commonly accepted uh the american president harry truman had a greater degree of involvement at that time uh, given that the group had been formed Uh, After the war and and during his presidency and in subsequent presidencies, you know, the the organization became presumably more and more compartmentalized, Uh, less accurate information was shared. In fact, there's a deleted scene from the film, uh, which is a good scene. I, I really like it. But it it uses as its point of departure the folklore that at a certain point the organization was in albuquerque and defying eisenhower refusing to report back to him Hmm. and he in turn threatened to threatened to very publicly compel them you know to to do so and in the film or sorry in the deleted scene from the film he meets with with robert cutler bobby cutler his uh his national security advisor and uh Imposes on him to to go out <laughs> to Albuquerque and let them know in, un, in no uncertain terms that he'll have them brought back bodily if they if they don't. <laughs> do so. And uh, so, in this sense, I, I think there were uh, there were aspects of that that have an historical basis during Eisenhower's presidency for sure. But we've been told that the clandestine organization continued to exist and evolve and i <laughs> don't have any mm. any reason not to think that 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 is the case if we consider you know in in the modern day whatever it has evolved into uh, some sort of senior interagency intelligence group uh if we consider the way in which public events public close encounter events are very carefully controlled where representatives of whatever this control group is seem to appear on the site and usurp local law enforcement certainly and in some cases the military but an even more documented way in which to think of this is to compare say the the alleged roswell incidents with the ones that followed simply a couple of years later uh at aztec uh, new mexico Mm. and compare the um the swiftness and efficiency with which the the aztec events uh, unfolded and were secretized compared to the messiness of how uh, the alleged roswell events were, were handled and secretized
1: yeah um, learning from their mistakes i guess would <laughs> be a good way to put it exactly yeah. yeah exactly hey guys ryan here and i'm just dropping in to tell you all about a podcast i recently discovered That has me binging their entire back catalogue. It's that fun, that good, and right up my alley. As I know, it most likely will be for you as well. Guide to the Unknown is a podcast about horror. Every week, sibling hosts Kristen Anderson and Will Rogers discuss spooky pop culture, urban legends, and the paranormal, while keeping it cozy and fun. Some of my favorite episodes include a tour of the unique Disney haunted mansions around the world, the account of a seance they attended in a paranormal bookstore, and the real life story behind one of my all time favorite movies, The Conjuring. They've covered Stonehenge, Crop Circles, Men in Black, Bigfoot, and even Techno Ghosts. Yes, you heard that right and you'll hear a new episode every Friday on all major podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I also have to mention that one of their most recent episodes covered the Allagash alien abduction incident, and they bring us up to speed with this highly controversial case. So grab your Afghan temple ball and give that episode a listen. Don't know what Afghan temple ball is? You will after listening. So head on over to www.gtupod.com for all social media links and to enjoy Guide to the Unknown Podcast. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. well okay so we did mention majestic 12 and without getting too speculative chris um one of those possible members some people have have said was uh james forestall and my mentor and colleague peter robbins he's a big you know proponent of uh not so much the ufo angle of James for james forestall but his life and his career. And um, and yes, his connections to the UFO issue. So for those who may not be familiar, could you maybe give us a little idea of who Forrestall was and why you used him in the film? And you even dedicated the film to him, which I thought was very powerful. So yeah, maybe if you could run us through who Forrestall was and how he plays into your your narrative.
0: Well, yes. I mean, Forrestal was, for me, a very important entry point into this material. Uh, he was you know, an investment banker who um, uh, was extremely successful in the 20s and 30s. Um, he was, you know, he worked for Dylan Reed uh, and um, Clarence Dillon, you know, the father of Doug Dillon, uh, later John Kennedy's uh, Secretary of the Treasury. And when war broke out, I mean, he he devoted himself to public service. Um, he became eventually Secretary of the Navy. Uh, well, I've heard Eisenhower's dictation of one of his memoirs discussing the way in which Forrestall confided in him that he was, he was broke. I mean, he had been through his fortune and, and this was a guy who was fantastically wealthy. I mean, he lived in the style of, of Jay Gatsby and, and indeed in the same, you know, in the same neck of the woods on, on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he, he became, as I say, a very dedicated public servant. And the most wonderful biography of him is, uh Townsend Hoops and Douglas Brinkley's book Driven Patriot which is a fantastically good biography but there are other sources that have more of a bearing on his later uh, decline you know he had he had a psychiatric a psychological decline overseeing the unification of you know the 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 armed services after the war um, into the Department of Defense it, it was a real struggle for him you know and and navy was probably the most obstinate uh, branch of the service in ceding its, uh, authority, you know, uh, to this larger department of defense. Um, so, you know, he, it was very difficult for him, very, very difficult. And, uh, at a certain point he was, uh, replaced, you know, president Truman felt that, uh, Lewis Johnson would, would (laughs) do the job better. And of course, Johnson was a man, of nowhere near the the skill and, and dedication of, of Forrestal. Or mm-hmm. I should say he probably was more self-serving than he was. But in any case, Forrestal is reputed to have been one of the people who recognized the necessity of there being a, a special group, a, a majestic type organization after the war. And, uh, so I think that, again, this is speculative to a degree, but I think that he was a proponent of gradual, gradual acclimatization and the gradual revelation of, uh, the information to the public, you know, by small degrees. Um, not necessarily all at once, certainly, but I think that as he saw various factions, various private Factions, you know, struggling to benefit from the secretization of the information, uh, and whatever artifacts, you know, were, were being examined at that time. Uh, I think he felt the need to accelerate even his own plans and the necessity to try and bring out some of the information through his congressional contacts. So, you know, again, the official story is full of, of mystery. It's one of those, those, uh, historical events that is, has so much ambiguity to it that it's going to keep people <laughs> guessing for a long time, but yeah. y- you can, you can read the willcuts report, which was the official inquest, which was unavailable for a long time. The Navy had kept it out of the public eye, but it, uh, it became available in the early two thousands, uh, due to a diligent researcher obtaining it by FOIA request. And you can view it at, uh, the Sealy mud library, uh, you know, in Princeton um, online, you can view it. Uh, Forrestal was, of course, a Princeton alumnus. So that, he, let's see, very much he, for me, is kind of emotionally at the center of what went wrong in the way in which we handled these events. yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I I, I think to the way you handle it in your film, uh, the event that would ultimately lead to the end of his life, it's extremely powerful and well done by the performer who played forestall in your film it, it it gave me chills watching that scene so i won't give it away to the audience but uh yeah kudos to the actor who played well ian hart yeah ian <laughs> hart
0: is one of one of the great british actors and i had had the pleasure of working with him at the very beginning of his career uh on my first feature uh the hours and times and then Almost 30 years to the day after we made that picture, he he came out to Los Angeles to shoot his scenes for me uh, for the 11th green. So even though uh, Forrestal doesn't have a lot of screen time in the movie, um, Ian does a, a really intense, uh, evocative job of, of depicting him. So, you know, and, and I should point out, I mean, there were many other reasons why Forrestal was controversial and why... People found him inconvenient <laughs> to be around at that point, you know, perhaps chief among those was his opposition to, you know, the partition of, of Palestine. Uh, and he, he had that position not because of any anti-Semitism on his part, but knowing that it was going to be the quagmire, you know, into the future that, that it has been. And there were other, you know, other reasons why he was, he was no longer you know, useful, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, it—he it, is an enigma in himself, and I think his impact is still, you know, <laughs> evolving in terms of a lot of where our country has led, uh, and in terms of sort of moving to i guess technology chris uh your film deals with the major struggle of disclosing the reality of uh anti-gravitic and possibly alien technology to the world in terms of your character rudd and um I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Do you think, you know, since 2017, uh, the, you know, secret Pentagon program we learned about, uh, this to the stars academy working with the Navy, the Army, uh, this even up to the Senate intelligence committee thing we're hearing about now with a possible UFO task force. I mean, I guess my question would be, do you think that we're moving closer to any type of disclosure when it comes to uh, technology that could ultimately change the world? Yes. Yes.
0: But I, as far as any sort of truth and reconciliation with the past and the grave— uh, sort of illegality that has has taken place in the past. I don't necessarily see that coming. And I don't think it's really healthy for us to sort of focus on a desire for that. Uh, but I do see uh, in the future that some of the breakthrough energy and propulsion technology will uh, finally be meeting, intersecting our world that is ready for it. Whereas I think in the past, in those isolated incidents where uh maverick inventors and visionary inventors have created uh, these exotic technologies that were suppressed uh there was not the readiness at the time they they just couldn't happen we were we as a society were not ready for them although you know probably uh, we'd be a lot better off if if we had been in terms of the environmental degradation that has occurred over the past century but yes now now is the time for these things not to be held back. And I, I have no doubt that there are factions that are so entrenched that they will continue to guard them, you know, tooth and nail. Um I think it was Ben Rich, the the former head of, of Lockheed Skunk Works, who said that uh these exotic technologies absolutely exist, but they're so deeply buried in special access programs that it would take I forget what he said exactly. I think he said uh, an act of God uh, to migrate them into the uh, open science and that mm-hmm. therefore it is better to reinvent them in the open science. And so obviously that's not efficient. <laughs> but, but anybody, you know, who has worked in, in the highly secret programs uh, that are so highly compartmentalized, will testify to the fact that they're not efficient either, since there's not an open exchange of information between people who are working on different pieces of the puzzle. You know, uh, I mean, during the Second World War, uh, General Groves famously wanted to enlist all of the scientists at Los Alamos and to maintain a strict compartmentalization between the different divisions. And there was a, a rebellion against that, you know? <laughs> uh, chiefly chiefly by Robert Oppenheimer, who headed the project. And they never would have accepted it. But now, of course, you have people who work within these, these deeply black programs, as has been attested to by various informants who uh, have very little knowledge of, of other parts uh, outside of their, their highly specific uh, function within the big, within the big picture. So again, uh, to make a long story short, I, I, I do hope that we now live in a time when all of the brilliant People working in the open science and who have had, uh, at least a knowledge of or exposure to, uh, exotic breakthrough energy and propulsion technology, uh, will be able to, to, to utilize that in a, in a constructive commercial way. And, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, your characters in the film, such as Forrestal, uh, Eisenhower, even, I mean, they do stress, like, these secrets can't last forever. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind, is the suppression of the information, whether it's technologically driven or even possibly extraterrestrial driven Um it, it, it can't last forever and i think that's what gives a lot of people hope out there whether it's in the ufo field or 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 any field i guess uh this idea that yeah there probably are these claddenstein groups working together and the back room boys and stuff like that but um it it just can't you know It it can't last forever and um some of those people who also, I guess, tried to get that information that was suppressed uh, came to the form of Dr. Eric Davis. Now, I, I've heard you talk about Eric Davis in previous interviews as well, and he's kind of a hot topic right now in the, the UFO field, as it were. So have you been following all of this story of the Wilson docs and all of this stuff, Chris, and uh, anything you want to talk about in terms of that and the questions you ask in your film?
0: Well, I'm, you know, I'm very pleased that, uh, Eric Wilson's, uh, or sorry, Eric Davis's notes on his discussion with Admiral Wilson, uh, have come to light, uh, even though, again, they've, they've been circulated among certain researchers for, for a number of years. Uh, the fact that they are being talked about is a really important thing, and I do find them credible, um, and I, I do find, um, the way in which uh, Admiral Wilson was allegedly treated by the contractor who was running this special access program to be very credible. Uh, and you can well imagine, <laughs> you know, you can well imagine other uh, officials, uh, even presidents who have been treated in a similar uh, shoddy way uh, by being denied access to the information. You know, I would hope that It is safer now for people in Congress, uh, to talk about this and to demand accountability. I mean, on the one hand, we have, uh, the ISCAP, the Interagency Security Classifications, uh, Classification Appeals Panel, which I think actually came about during the Obama years. Um, but its reach is limited. Um, and you know i i think that it is limited in terms of reaching into the carved out sections of of certain special access programs uh eric davis's notes uh point out a particular uh, incident that had occurred in which um congressional oversight was coming too close to their sap and uh, the deals that were apparently struck <laughs> to keep that yeah. from ever happening again so we can only hope that with new blood in the Congress, um, they won't accept those, those limitations. And, and certainly on a fiscal level, you know, there'll be a demand for, for more accountability. But, uh, again, I, I think so much of this really has to do with the evolution in society in the largest sense, uh, the willingness to accept not only the reality of UFOs, but the idea that we have had contact with extraterrestrial races. It really has to do with humanity's organic readiness, uh, more so than with any active suppression, which, which indeed has taken place over decades, but it's more to do with our readiness. And so for that reason, I think that all of these revelations are, are extremely important in allowing individuals to feel, uh, more comfortable talking about the subject and questioning the lies that we've been spoon-fed for so many years the distortions that we've you know been been fed ever since well the Robertson panel and and before then in mm-hmm. the 1950s um we we really need to own up to this and accept responsibility for it our our president in the film uh, our obama our obama character Says, you know, do you want the people to feel like, uh, they're part of some creative evolutionary process, you know, as opposed to feeling jerked around by like puppets on a string by a conspiracy of bankers or blue bloods or mm-hmm. the media or whatever. So, and, and an important part of this is the media's willingness to step up to the plate and, and cover the topic in something other than the giggle factor. You know, anybody familiar with, um, Terry Hansen's book, The Missing Times, knows that there's a long history of the media covering this in a very distorted way.
1: Absolutely, uh, yeah.
0: Often being a pawn, wittingly or unwittingly, in spreading disinformation.
1: Right, and I know we've even had things like, I believe it was Project Mockingbird, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. where like even the CIA and whatnot were telling journalists what to write about. And I mean, that right there is just a sign of... How far the intelligence communities might be willing to go to suppress that information, or to keep that stigma alive. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think now more than ever, we are inching towards uh, some sort of shift. And uh, 2020. The possibilities are endless, as we have seen, Chris. So I mean, maybe Absolutely. this will be the time, and you know, we have a another election coming up very, very soon. So could this be a tide turning in terms of the UFO issue? I don't know, but um, I I love that I that question that you have your Obama character kind of um jab back at eisenhower with because eisenhower's initial question is how do we humanity get through this with our power intact and um i think you're right i think it really depends on how we deal with that information if it was given to us that's been the biggest hypothetical since day one when it comes to that that word disclosure you know how will the world change um how will it affect everything yeah
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and so much of it depends, uh, as well on the way in which we conceive of our government. You know, rather than, uh, conceiving of the government as something that rules us or mm-hmm. rules over us, you know, when do we, when do we start conceiving of it as, uh, something that serves us, you know, and how can it serve us optimally as, as individuals, as, as people, as opposed to, uh, serving special interests? I, I do think that we we are entering a, a new era, and certainly I don't think that the IC is necessarily working against this. I think that the factions working against so-called disclosure are are very small indeed. I mean, very small and very entrenched. And um, but I think for the most part there is a wait and see attitude and a, and a, a very much an awareness of our readiness. And, and certainly we see that I think in these seeming trial balloons that. American presidents have have floated <laughs> by way of their television appearances their late night talk shows one of which is dramatized in the film yeah uh, you know being asked by Jimmy Kimmel about this and i think those shed a lot of light on the idea that our leaders do have a, a finger on the pulse of our readiness to to deal with this to deal with this topic even our current president appeared recently on in a father's day interview with his son and in my opinion, probably went further in, in that particular uh, trial balloon, if you want to call it that, <laughs> than the other people have gone even in the past. So
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You know, when, when our current president was first elected, like it was not a topic he wanted to touch. He had no interest in it. He didn't. Uh, personal beliefs kept him from looking into it. Uh, and now we see towards the end of, uh, at his first presidency, um, we, we won't get into politics, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, right. a, a sort of willingness to be more open to the topic, uh, I found very fascinating. Uh, maybe he does no more than he's letting on. And we do know that probably certain presidents were led into more information than others. Uh I I would assume Bush at some point, you know, um Truman obviously and this that, but it is an interesting question. And um moving back to the public for a minute and I guess more of within the ufology circles this niche community um as it were there's kind of two camps chris and i'm sure you've come across this as i have in your research there's a very nuts and bolts scientific approach to a physical tangible phenomenon and then there's this whole idea of consciousness aspect to it all a more metaphysical or interdimensional approach and in your film, you kind of tackle both of these elements in in an elegance I've not really seen done before in any film or television show. And um, I was wondering, do you think we should, as a community, whether it's just ufology or people interested in this topic, should we be focusing on one or the other when it comes to this? Or should we be tackling this mystery from all ends? What do you think, personally?
0: I think we should look at it from all ends, but I also know that... Uh the circus of phenomenon, of phenomena, if you want to call it that, of, of, you know, physiological phenomena and evidence can be, uh, kind of, um, uh, a bottomless pit, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I really think that we need to, we really need to ask ourselves, uh, you know, what is, what does this mean on a level of consciousness and on a level of personal growth and what does our presumed connection to various extraterrestrial races throughout our history mean to us and to our sense of identity and to our religions and other institutions? I mean, there are big questions that I think need to be examined uh, much more than— uh, you know, artifacts need to be examined, and and uh, speculation about artifacts, even though all of that is interesting and important. You know, the physical traces that are left during landings and close encounter events, uh, the ejecta that we've analyzed, or we that that have been analyzed mm-hmm. uh, and written about by people like Jacques Vallée, who himself is certainly uh, very much a proponent of the idea of these visitors being interdimensional in some nature or being from a realm of consciousness rather than uh physiological beings who, who traveled zillions of miles to, to get here in right. metallic objects. So, um, it is very important to consider on a very deeply personal level, what, what this means to us and, and to quell, you know, and, and address any elements of shadow that are inside us personally, individually, uh, Uh, that are related to this projection that we have of the other or this projection of, of extraterrestrial visitors, you know, how does that relate to our shadow? And, you know, by, by looking and examining deeply our own shadows, you know, can we let go of any fear that we might have of encountering the other and acknowledging our connection to the other? And indeed, if you want to talk about truth and reconciliation, acknowledging, our connection and responsibility on some level for all of the, uh, sequestration of the information and cover up and the illegality, uh, and terrible deeds that, that were associated with that in the past.
1: It really is a mirror reflecting back on us, this entire topic. And, you know, I started as a young UFO researcher just looking at the nuts and bolts and realizing as the years went on and after interviewing hundreds and hundreds of uh, witnesses or claimed uh close encounter experiencers or even abductees you know i i have kind of gone down that road of this says so much more about us than it ever will uh the phenomena so i i'm so glad to see that 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 was kind of the overall uh idea of your film is what does this mean as human beings and i i'm sure this kind of ties into your last answer but what do you hope viewers will Take away from the 11th green. You know, I hope that
0: they would have fun with the film, first of all, and enjoy the film. Uh, but I also would hope that they, uh, maybe use it as an excuse to examine some of their preconceptions about UFOs or extraterrestrial visitors or, uh, the Eisenhower presidency or the American century or the growth of the military industrial complex um i would hope that it would just inspire some of those discussions and even look at the institutions that are depicted uh the chiefly the institution of the american presidency uh the way it in which it's depicted and the way in which we think about our leaders and uh you know what we want them to be who they want who we want them to be
1: for yeah. us yeah that's a really really good way to sort of i think cap off the 11th green here chris but um i got to ask you as a filmmaker and i'm sure it's hard to to get this question after just having released a film i know when my Book first came out. The next day, people asked me, "You know, what's next? What are you doing next?" Like, I just spent two years on this book. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so what comes next for you as a filmmaker? Anything you can share with us that you're you're working on? You know, I'm looking
0: at a couple of things. I am not very far along with either of them. Uh, one of them is is tangentially related to to uh, the subject of uh, visitation, and it's also an historical film. So, I. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the position where the pictures that I make are, do tend to be very personal and they do tend to follow my, my interests in that way. And I, I really can't put a finger on what it is that causes me to want to do a film. But I do know that once I commit to it, it it's a very deep commitment. And, you know, typically these things take me a number of years to do. Um, the 11th Green took seven years, you know, to make. I'm I'm excited going forward. Interestingly, I, you know, I feel like the work that I've been doing since Letters from the Big Man really is, well, I should say that I regard everything before that as having been kind of apprentice work for me, uh, which I love and, you know, which I appreciate in, in hindsight. But uh, I think that what I'm doing now uh, interests me more than any of that ever did. So...
1: I'm sure that's very rewarding in many ways as well. And I mean, what, what I really enjoyed about this film, Chris, is now I have other films of yours to go and, and look at because this was my introduction to your work. And it was, it really impressed me. And I think what's really important to keep in mind too is you're challenging these issues. You're challenging Hollywood, even. I mean, y- your, your films are not this, cookie-cutter, spoon-fed-to-you thing that we're so used to seeing. I mean, I had so many questions after watching the film, so I'm so happy we got to uh sort of um, unpack some of those here today. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy the fact that you're not giving us all the answers, because we probably will never get those. Let's be completely honest. But at least we're trying. And I think what's so important with the UFO topic is we haven't found an answer in 70 plus years. And I think it might be time to start asking new questions. So I'm so happy you were able to do that.
0: Oh, thank you. Yes. And I think that I think that that suggestion is is a very good one. Yeah. Um, uh, New questions. Absolutely.
1: Well, in terms of new questions, Chris, my last question for you here. Uh, can you explain theatrical at home for us and how and where we can find The 11th Green?
0: Sure. You know, when The 11th Green uh, was ready to be released, unfortunately, it coincided with the quarantine. And as a result of that, most theaters were closed everywhere. So we began working with uh, a platform that was started by a producer friend of mine uh from Oregon uh and she had had a successful release of her previous film uh, Phoenix Oregon utilizing this method so uh basically um it uh let's see a ticket purchase uh of the film to watch the film now uh benefits uh, the theater the the revenue is split with the theater, so it's as if you know you had made an in person attendance um, and the theaters are listed you know on the side and you can choose one from a drop down menu that you want to support and that's the way it's available right now and then it it will eventually transition into uh, a more conventional vod uh, type of release on the usual platforms uh, iTunes and amazon's but uh, not not until uh probably later in in september um but for the time being uh the easiest way to find the film is just through my website christophermunch.com and there's you can't miss it there's (laughs) there's a link right link right there that'll take you to the purchase page at theatrical at home and then there's uh there's a recorded uh q and a uh discussion uh, a post screening discussion that's included with that, and we will be having a live q and a coming up uh, on July twentieth um, which anybody who buys a ticket to the film will also have the opportunity to see uh, and will be invited to uh, participate in so um, there's one film festival date coming up that I should mention this Tuesday the fourteenth at maine uh, a conventional well, it's not conventional, it's a drive-in theater oh, yeah. uh, in Skowhegan, Maine, a very reputable, uh, distinguished, older film festival uh, programmed by Ken Eisen. Uh, so that's the Maine International Film Festival on the 14th. But for most of your audience who is not in Maine, um, the best way to see the film is simply to go to my website, ChristopherMunch.com.
1: That's awesome. And, you know, it's 2020, Chris. Who would have thought drive-in movie theaters would be making a return, right? But... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> think it's it great. is. It really is. Uh, well, I have to thank you for coming on today, Chris. This is fascinating. Please, everyone, go check out the movie The 11th Green. And, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues.